Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Now, Zechariah, although he's addressing the immediate situation, Zechariah is projecting out prophetically to the future to address both the first and the second coming of the Messiah. Now, of course, at the time, nobody really understood that there were two comings of the Messiah. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Zechariah chapters 1 through 3. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Zechariah, the second to the last book of the Old Testament. So, on a completely unrelated note, but on a good note. Um, so, so, today I was with, I was with a friend and uh, spent some time together. And, I, and I've known this person for a long time, but I haven't known him like super well. Just more, you know, see him every now and again, see him at a conference, say hi to him, have a bunch of mutual friends. Anyway, we, we spent some time together, a couple hours together, just, he's a, he's a pastor of a church as well. And, um, but anyway, all that to say, before we parted ways, we just, got on the topic of, of his conversion story. And I'm telling you, by the time we got back to the church and, and I got out of the car, I was so excited about the goodness of God and just the amazing ways that God works in people's lives. And I don't know about you, but testimonies are so life-giving. They're, they remind me so often of just the reality of who God is and the way he works. And, and just, you know, really quick, two quick things. He, he, he's older, older than I am. Uh, he, he fought in Vietnam. And uh, when he was in Vietnam, he said his particular role Guys usually lasted about a day before they were killed. And he wasn't saved, wasn't even remotely a Christian. He met, he, he said he met a Christian in Vietnam who had gone to Calvary Chapel. <laughs> and the guy kind of, you know, did a little witnessing to him and stuff. And he's like, yeah, cool, I need God. You know, I might get killed out here. So uh, pray for me. And he said he thinks maybe he took a Bible or something, but you know, that was pretty much the end of it. But he did say that he, he said to God, he said, God, if you get me out of here, I promise I will serve you. And so he did, he did his year. And he said, I came home without a scratch and never thought again about his vow. 11 years later, he's a drug dealer, kind of just doing his thing. And he said one night, 
He's driving along, and all of a sudden, a voice spoke to him and said, what are you doing with your life? And he said, the second that happened, he knew exactly who it was that was talking to him. And he remembered the vow that he had made. And the next day, he gave his life to Jesus. And, you know, the story goes on, amazing story. But, um, man, I'm just listening to that. And I'm thinking, wow, Lord, you know, you're just so good. The way you work, and the way you save people. And we know that he wants to save more people, right? He's still doing that stuff. And we want him to keep doing that. And so let's just keep praying that God will do that, that he will pour out his spirit on the next generations, generations plural. And, you know, we would just see a great, great thing from the Lord. So Zechariah. Zechariah is my favorite of the minor prophets. The name... Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers, Yahweh remembers. And when you think of the name of the prophet and you look at his prophecy, you really see that that there's a correlation because in Zechariah's prophecy, God is reminding them that he has not forgotten anything about the promises that he's made to them. And that ultimately they were all come to pass. And when we get to the end of the book, we end the book of Zechariah in the millennium in the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's really quite amazing. Now, let's kind of set the stage again. Remember... Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. They are prophets who are ministering side by side. Haggai's ministry began a few months before the ministry of Zechariah. But in, in 536 BC, Cyrus gave a decree for the Jews to return back to their homeland and to rebuild their temple. He uh, permitted them to do that and there was a written decree concerning it. 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem at that time. In the second month of the year 535, they laid the foundation of the temple. According to Ezra, in the third chapter, that's where we have the record of that. But having laid the foundation of the temple, they began to face, after that, uh, opposition from the new inhabitants of the land. And because of this opposition, the work was stalled for 14 years. In 521 BC, Darius Hystaspas, he's a new ruler, he came to the throne. And this is when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah 
they, assuming the decrees of the former king are now void, they aroused the people to undertake the work again. And that's what was happening when we looked at Haggai in our previous study. And so the work was again started, but then it was quickly opposed by a Persian governor named Tatnai and temporarily stopped until the original decree from Cyrus was found in the Babylonian archives and Darius gave permission for the work to resume and it was completed. So the temple was completed in 515 BC, the sixth year of Darius's reign and 21 years after the beginning of the work that, as I said, had started in 536. So it was the prophetic ministry of Haggai and Zechariah that encouraged Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people to finish the work. Now, as we, as we saw with Haggai, his chief purpose really was focusing on them. Remember, they were neglecting the temple. They were building their own paneled houses and things. So, so he's um, really concentrating his ministry on challenging them to get back to the work of God. But he also has within his uh, prophetic messages, he does have certain brief, but prophecies that extend out beyond the immediate situation. And we saw that he has that amazing prophecy about the Lord shaking heaven and earth and the desire of the nations, the Messiah coming. And and that's kind of the, the high point of Haggai when it comes to futuristic prophecy. Now, Zechariah, on the other hand, although he's addressing the immediate situation, Zechariah is projecting out prophetically to the future to address both the first and the second coming of the Messiah. Now, of course, at the time, nobody really understood that there were two comings of the Messiah. But as we look at Zechariah's prophecy, he has prophecies about the first coming that are quoted and applied to situations concerning Jesus in the New Testament. And then he has much to say about the second coming as well. And so it's for that reason, because of the heavy futuristic prophetic aspect of Zechariah, it's for that reason that the book has often been referred to as the apocalypse of the Old Testament. And like the book of Revelation, it makes much use of figurative and symbolic language. So there's, there's some challenges in Zechariah because there, there is figurative and symbolic language. So trying to, to get at what is behind the symbolism, there are a few challenges that we will face as we make our way through. But probably the most well-known passages in Zechariah are three passages that have to do with the first coming of Jesus. And they are, number one, 
Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and riding on a donkey. We're all familiar with that passage, right? We've read it in all the gospels. It is, the, that was fulfilled on what we call Palm Sunday. Zechariah prophesied that. Also, Zechariah prophesied the betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver by Judas. And so in the 11th chapter, we read there, so they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And then thirdly, in the 13th chapter, we have these words recorded, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And if you remember, as you've read the story of the arrest of Jesus, Jesus quotes Zechariah right here or or right there in, in that context. So he's quoting from the 13th chapter of Zechariah. There are also many prophecies of the second coming of Christ. And it's through Zechariah that we understand. Zechariah says things that none of the other prophets said. This is one of the fascinating ones. Zechariah is the one who tells us that the Lord, when he returns, he will actually build the temple of the Lord and he will sit upon his throne as both a king and a priest. See, in all the history of Israel, there was not a combining of the king or the priest. They were separate offices. And the one time in their history when one of the kings took it upon himself to go into the holy place and seek to offer a sacrifice, that was Uzziah, he was struck with leprosy. But it was always clear that these, were, these roles were to be kept separate. But what we learned from Zechariah is that they're kept separate because they're reserved for one person. And so in Zechariah, we see that the appointing of God or the appointing by God of Jesus as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, a priest king, that is prophesied in Zechariah. So there's many, many things here that we have to look forward to. And we'll make our way through these 14 chapters and take a number of weeks to do it. So in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo, the prophet saying, the Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, 
just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So th- this is always interests me. This is, remember, this is post-Babylonian captivity. So you're, you're kind of expecting when the people come back from the Babylonian captivity, they are cured of their sin problems. They are cured of their lack of devotion and rebellion. But what we find is that a lot of those things still exist. And so between Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, you have these post-exilic prophets. They're after the exile, but they're warning the people that have now come back into the land not to fall into the habits of their forefathers. So that was the first word that Zechariah gave to them. On the 24th day of the 11th month, So his first prophecy was in the eighth month. That was two months after Haggai began his prophetic ministry. And now here we are on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shebat. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. Let me just say one thing here. Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. Zechariah, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, is from a priestly family, but he's not a priest. He doesn't function as a priest. Jeremiah did not function as a priest. Ezekiel obviously was in Babylon, so there was no priestly function in Babylon. But all three of these prophets are part of the priestly family. And think about in the New Testament, who do we also have who is from a priestly family but doesn't function as a priest? John the Baptist, that's right. Cheryl, it's cheating. I told her on the way over who it was. (laughs) So, son of Edo, and um, when you go back in in Nehemiah and it lists the priestly family, there you have Edo, but then he's not followed by Zechariah or or even Berechiah for that matter. So it shows that his other sons were the ones who carried on in the priestly ministry. And so I saw by night, here is a vision that he's going to describe. I saw by night and behold, a man riding on a red horse. And it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Sorrel, the NIV translates as brown. And so red, brown, and white. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. So again, here we are. We have the symbolism. We have these riders. We have this horse. We have the myrtle trees. What does this mean? It's difficult to say with certainty, but obviously 
it's the Lord who's speaking. And some have suggested, and this, this goes back to even ancient rabbinical interpretations, that the myrtle trees were representative of, of Jerusalem at the time. So myrtle trees did not grow to be big trees. They were small trees. They were, they were sort of, it was like a picture of humility or something that had been humbled. But simultaneously, the myrtle tree was fragrant. And so many commentators see this as this is a picture of Israel among the nations who is in a humbled state. Now, they've come back from the Babylonian captivity and they have taken 21 years to build the temple. But if you remember the story of Nehemiah, the city itself is still a mess because the temple is built quite a while before Nehemiah comes and actually restores the walls of the city. So it seems that the picture here is that of, again, uh, Jerusalem among the nations in a humbled state, but yet fragrant to the Lord. Or, Or the Lord is mindful of Jerusalem. And as it goes on, as they come having these messengers, as, as they come having walked to and throw throughout the earth, they answer and they say that all the earth is resting quietly. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years. So here's the contrast. It's it's kind of a picture of all of the surrounding nations are living in relative peace and prosperity at the moment. The Persians had conquered. They had settled everybody. Their policies had brought about a relative uh, tranquility among the nations, but Jerusalem is still in rubble. So that seems to be the picture that's being painted here. And so the cry, the angel of the Lord said, O Lord, Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy? And the Lord answered the angel who talked with me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. And now let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. During the Easter season, we have many, many opportunities to speak to people about the greatest event ever. And that event, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus. But people would often say, well, come on, is that really true? And it's a good question. And guess what? There are great answers to that question. And I have a little book in my hand by Rebecca McLaughlin. The book is entitled, Is Easter Unbelievable? Rebecca does a tremendous job 
answering four critical questions that everyone should ask when it comes to the person and the claims of Jesus. Is Jesus' life historical? Is his death ethical? Is his resurrection credible? Is his offer desirable? All that is in this small little book. It'll be a blessing to you, and it'll be a great gift to give to others during the Easter season. So ask for your copy of Is Easter Unbelievable by Rebecca McLaughlin. Again, this month's resource is a book titled, Is Easter Unbelievable? Four Questions Everyone Should Ask About the Resurrection Story by Rebecca McLaughlin. You can order the book, Is Easter Unbelievable? by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book, Is Easter Unbelievable? by Rebecca McLaughlin to help you understand and explain in simple language the reliability of the resurrection of Jesus and why His offer of life is so desirable. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we continue our series with the book of Zechariah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.